Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 247. It's titled, More Indexes, ETFs, and Manager Skill, But Less Alpha. Alpha is a word for excess return. At least that's how we're going to use it in today's episode, the ability of managers to outperform an index. In a paradox, we'll see that managers are actually getting more skillful in terms of their ability to identify mispriced securities, but that isn't translating into excess return. We'll see why in this episode. But before that, let's look at indices or indexes. Turns out you can use either word. That's the plural of index. Indexes or indices. This was a topic requested by Joe as he saw the number of indexes and ETFs was proliferating. And he wanted to know about how index providers operate. What's their criteria, for example, including a particular stock in their index? In 2017, there was $79.2 trillion of assets under management around the world. With revenue of $275 billion, this is according to the Boston Consulting Group. That includes both passive strategies, which seek to replicate an index, and active strategies that seek to outperform an index. Now, here is a shocking number. There are 3.3 million stock indexes. 3.3 million That's 70 times more indexes than there are publicly traded securities or publicly traded stocks. There are 43,000 publicly traded stocks, but over 3 million stock indexes. This is according to the Index Industry Association. You would think the reason why there are so many indexes is because there are more exchange-traded funds, these publicly traded securities that seek to replicate a particular index. But that's not the case. There's only about 5,000 ETFs representing roughly $5.3 trillion of assets under management. Yet there's 3.3 million stock indexes. Why? Well, I mentioned it's getting more difficult for active managers to outperform. Even though they're getting more skilled, it's difficult for them to deliver excess return. One way to to sort of not get fired is to make sure that your benchmark is representative of how you pick securities. If it's easy to outperform in terms of being able to identify securities, then it's less important which benchmark you use because your level of excess return is so great that you can just use a more generic benchmark like the S&P 500. But if it's becoming more and more difficult to outperform an index, then managers want a more customized index that's more representative of the universe of stocks that they select from. Oftentimes, they'll show multiple indices. We used to do this as an investment advisor. We would show a primary benchmark. We'd show a secondary benchmark. Sometimes we'd show a third benchmark. It's difficult when you're on the investment committee of an endowment or a pension plan, and you have a manager, you bring them in, they give an update on their portfolio, and they show whether they outperformed or not. 
Much of my time as an advisor, consultant, was defending underperforming managers because they, they do underperform. They can go through lengthy periods of underperformance. And so having a good benchmark helps in that explanation. Here's how Rick Redding, he's chief executive of Index Industry Association, puts it. The results show that benchmarking is clearly the predominant use of indexes around the world. With over 3 million indexes available, asset managers and investors want choices when choosing a benchmark that best represents their portfolio and the underlying market. Indexing is a big business. Global revenue for index providers was $2.7 billion in 2017. That's an 18.8% increase from the prior year. This is according to a benchmark study by Burton Taylor International Consulting. There's three large players. Each has about 26% global market share. There's S&P Dow Jones Indices, MSCI, and FTSE Russell. These three players get a lot of scrutiny. The Wall Street Journal did, really, I guess you'd call it an expose. They looked at MSCI, who in 2017, for the first time, added China domestic listed securities, which are sometimes known as A-shares, and included them in the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Their weight was less than 1%. But this year, they plan to expand that even further to where those A-shares will comprise 3.3% of the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. The Wall Street Journal kind of questioned MSCI's independence. They point out that MSCI was getting government pressure to include those domestic stocks in the index. They give the example that two national stock exchanges threatened to withdraw MSCI's access to market pricing data, which is critical that they have that to provide information to their clients. MSCI says, no, we did not compromise our integrity. Henry Fernandez, he's the chief executive at MSCI, said there was zero politics behind the decision. He continued, it's based on the analysis we come up with, a consultation. We take the information and create a thesis and talk to hundreds of investors. It's impossible to be subject to political influence. But the Wall Street Journal pointed out that regulators last year approved nine Chinese exchange-traded funds that tracked the performance of MSCI indices, where before there was only one. So it's hard to say. MSCI says their, their editorial component that makes these index decisions is completely separate from their commercial component. Most index providers have very specific criteria that they use, including MSCI. There's a 186-page document titled MSCI Global Investable Market Indexes. Here's some of their criteria before including a stock in an index. They're looking at exhausted coverage of the investable opportunity set with non-overlapping size and style segmentation a strong emphasis on investability and replicability of the indexes through the use of size and liquidity screens. In other words, you need to be able to, to invest the index. If you have an index, you need to be able to replicate it in a passive strategy. So it needs to be made up of stocks that are sufficiently liquid to be able to invest in them. Finally, they're looking at an innovative 
maintenance methodology that provides a superior balance between index stability and reflecting changes in the opportunity set in a timely way. This gets to changes in the underlying index. The fact that index providers will add new companies and take out old companies from their benchmark. Ideally, there's stability there, but as the opportunity set changes, they might want to make some adjustments. This gets to be challenging because there's a price premium for stocks that are included in an index. This is research by Antti Petahisto from the New York University Department of Finance, and he found it, and they did a, he did a study from looking at data from 1990 to 2005 and found that when a new company was added to the S&P 500, that the price impact was around 8.8%. In other words, it jumped in price for the S&P 500. For the Russell 2000, the average jump in price was about 4.7%. When a stock was taken out of those indices, for the S&P 500, the stock fell 15%, and for the Russell 2000, 4.6%. And so the, the stocks in the index, there's a premium for that. He calculated an index turnover cost that represented sort of a penalty by the fact that once a stock is added, oftentimes it's later on that a manager might buy them and if they're trying to replicate the index. So if it's an index fund, you don't they announce the change, then you got to buy the security. So there's a cost to that. Likewise, when something's dropped, there's a cost to that. And they, they estimate just this turnover cost is about 0.2 to 0.3% for the S&P 500 to potentially 04 to 0.8% for the Russell 2000. That is domestic indexes. It's the same for international. MSCI. Bloomberg points out that MSCI also announced that they're taking the weight of Thailand from 2.5% to 3% of the emerging market index. And so there's 24 stocks that make up the Thai component. There's going to be more demand for those stocks. Churchill Capital, Tim Rice, he manages assets in Thailand. He estimates that there's about $6.5 billion worth of passive money tracking the MSCI Thailand, and that this, this increase in the weight will add about another $1.5 billion in passive management, which pushes up the price. Now, I mentioned there's been more and more indexes created so that active managers have something to benchmark themselves against that more closely represents how they invest. There are definitely an increase in indices by actual asset managers, those that want to create an ETF. One reason they, they like to do that is if you're an asset manager, you want to create an exchange traded fund, you can either license somebody else's index or you can create your own. And by creating your own, it's cheaper and you can make more money. There's definitely money being made in the ETF segment. And you have to be wary because asset managers will often fund these new ETFs with their own client money. This is called bring your own assets. Wall Street Journal profiled JP Morgan. They raised $15.6 billion last year in new ETF assets. They launched a series of, of new ETFs. And now their clients, JP Morgan clients own 53% of the firm's ETF assets. Now, that, that's allowed as long as there's proper disclosure. J.P. Morgan spokeswoman Kristen Chambers pointed out that by switching 
these JP Morgan clients are able to save 10 to 60% in fees compared to competing ETFs. So it's not like these new ETFs are always inferior. Sometimes they're just cheaper. And one reason they're cheaper is they might have a different index that they track, an index that the ETF sponsor worked with an index provider to create. Schwab's the same way. I invest in Schwab ETFs. About 18% of the holders of Schwab ETFs are their clients. What Schwab does is they they're transaction-free. Aaron Montgomery of Schwab points out that these ETFs, they've earned their way into portfolios across the industry on their own merits. And they're very inexpensive. But you need to be aware, what's the incentive? Who owns the ETF? What index is being tracked? Some of these new indexes and ETFs are very, very complex, and you have to really dig in and understand how they're constructed. Every time there's a new index created, usually there's a white paper that's created that will show longer-term history. And we recently did an analysis of this, a brand-new ETF. The index is the CBOE S&P 500 30% Buffer Protect Index Series. Now, that's complicated. We'll take a look at that and just as an illustration. Before we do so, let me share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tagovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. When I was an investment advisor, occasionally a client would send me a private note issued by an insurance company where that was offering some level of upside on the S&P 500 in exchange for some protection on the downside. Now you're seeing these type of notes structured as indexes and exchange-traded funds. And that's what the CBOE S&P 500 30% Buffer Protect Index Series is, along with the Innovator S&P 500 Alter Buffer ETF, which is an ETF that seeks to replicate that index. The way this works is you get the upside up to about 11% in terms of the return on the S&P 500. And then if the loss is between 0 and negative 5%, you're exposed to that. Anything between negative 5 and negative 30, you don't have any exposure, so you're protected. But anything over a 30% loss, then you're exposed again. So basically, you have this, this range between negative 5 and negative 30 where you, you're not subject to the losses, and you get any positive return up until 11%. Now, these, these are typically structured as series, so I think this is like a one-year ETF, and then 
And then at the end of the end of that year, end of that time frame, then it, it's redeemed. Pretty complicated, isn't it? And that's what you're seeing. That's why we have now so many indexes. Oftentimes it's taking what was done by brokerages, insurance companies, and moving them over into an ETF structure. There's a lot of ETFs. The broad-based ETF, it's covered. There's definitely a price war in terms of fees keep dropping. But this particular ETF has an expense ratio of 0.79%. It's tracking an index, but that index effectively was created in order to launch these ETFs. Is this a passive strategy or is this an active? It's sort of a combination of both. Institutional investors are big players in the ETF. They're buying ETFs. They're investing in ETFs. And they're wanting more niche-type products. And these are also available to individuals. But you're seeing a proliferation of indexes and ETFs. What I found really fascinating this week, and I've talked about just how much more passive management there is. And, and I've struggled with understanding the implications for this. As more and more people passively manage their portfolio, will that create more opportunities for active management to outperform? I came across a series of papers this week by Robert Stambaugh and his co-authors. He's a professor at the Wharton School of Finance. I'll link to these papers in the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com or if you're a member of my free insider's guide, I will have sent you these links already, along with some type of essay I do, some of the best writing I do each week, sometimes on that week's episode, sometimes on something else. You can sign up for that also at moneyfortherestofus.com. In these papers, Stambaugh's looking at active versus passive management. And he writes, for active management in aggregate to beat the market benchmark before cost and fees, other market participants must underperform that benchmark. The potentially underperforming segment is typically assumed to comprise what he calls noise traders, whose asset demands deviate exogenously from those consistent with rational assessments of fundamental values. What he's saying is active managers are, are trying to identify mispriced securities and that these mispricings are because there are these noise traders that potentially are, are buying for other reasons other than just what's going on fundamentally. Some of it just might be trading as it relates to ETFs, keeping the price of the ETF in line with the net asset value. He suggests that as more and more investors go passive, that there's less noise, less opportunity for active managers to add value. Yet, he also has found that active managers are becoming more skilled. They're becoming better at finding these mispriced securities. He writes, there are many active managers. What if most of them become more skilled? Then, for example, a stock that is truly underpriced is more likely to be identified correctly as such by active managers. And that stock is more likely to be bought by them. This collective higher demand for the stock raises the price managers pay for it, reducing the investment profit they make from buying it. It's kind of fascinating. And he actually did some studies to determine that managers are becoming more skilled. They're able to more quickly identify mispriced securities through the use of technology because they're better educated. 
and they're becoming very good at it, which means the opportunity to find mispriced securities becomes less. He's sort of likened it to agriculture. Farmers have become more efficient through the use of technology. They're able to to grow more food with less people. As there becomes more passive management, potentially there's less active managers, but those that are still around are very, very efficient. You have all these quantitative managers looking for mispricings. He also found that younger funds, so mutual funds that were only a few years old, tended to be more skilled than older funds, but not because they're smarter. It's they have less assets under management because they're more nimble and able to find these mispriced securities and take advantage of them. The bigger funds, as they seek to invest in that opportunity to take advantage of that mispricing because they have so much assets under management, they can impact the price, push it up as they buy an undervalued security. And as a result, just due to the massive scale of active managers, they're more skilled at identifying mispriced securities, but they're falling short in terms of implementation because of the amount of assets they have under management. At the same time, the number of opportunities are less as more money goes to passive management and we have less noise traders. This is counterintuitive to what I used to think, that as there was more and more passive management, that there would be opportunity for active managers. But he's saying that's not necessarily the case because there would be less noise traders, so there would be less opportunity for active managers as more investors go passive. He also introduces a concept called echo traders. Those are active managers that just kind of replicate what's happening from the noise traders. And I think this can lead to bubbles. In other words, just sort of following the crowd. So this is not a solved issue. As we see more and more passive management, we'll have to see how the market develops. As I see the market now, there are still sufficient active managers competing intensely to identify mispriced securities. And they do a very, very good job of finding those mispriced securities, particularly quantitative manager, which means for us trying to buy individual stocks, pretty tough to do. You have to have some type of informational edge. That's why I primarily use passive management. At the same time, we need to be aware that there's a proliferation of exchange-traded funds, of index funds, and of indexes. And we need to understand when we invest in a particular ETF or index fund, what's the underlying index? How is it constructed? Understand sort of the methodology. Go find the white paper. For the broad-based index, it's, it's probably less of an issue. But let's say it's a value index. There's many different types of value indexes out there. We need to understand how it's constructed because many of them are heavily weighted in financial stocks. 40 to percent or so in financials of banks. Is that the type of value index you want? And so we need to understand the index, understand the product, understand the fees, understand is it a fully replicated strategy in the sense that some ETFs might just do a sampling instead of buying all the underlying holdings within the index. That potentially could lead to more tracking error, which is something else you want to look at relative 
with an ETF or index fund? How closely has it been able to replicate that index over time? If we're a primarily passive manager, there's still work involved. Figuring out which ETF, which index fund, what's our overall asset allocation? And so investing, it does take some work, but it's work you can do. You can be a successful investor. Just need to understand some basics. That's why I do this podcast. That's why I have a book coming out. That's why I offer money for the rest of us, plus a premium membership site to provide a little more guidance, some model portfolios and things along those lines. That is episode 247. Show notes are at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>